All right, y'all, we're into the second commandment. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. It should be in your bulletin. You also have a pew Bible that you can use. If you like having the book opened. Uh, all right, there was this woman, and she, she is of the expressive type. And she happened to wander into a liturgical church service one Sunday morning. And while the preacher was preaching, she was deeply moved and she became uh, caught up in the message. And she spontaneously exclaimed, praise the Lord. To which a fellow worshiper on her row raised her eyebrows and leaned over and whispered, excuse me, excuse me. But we do not praise the Lord in the Presbyterian church. (laughs) Now, there was a man down the pew who overheard this conversation and he corrected this particular woman and said, Yes, we do. It's on page 19. (laughs) Now, if the first commandment is about the object of worship, trusting and treasuring, the true God in a world filled with lords and lovers and lawgivers, all vying for your heart, all seeking to attract you and woo you to trust and treasure them. If that's the first commandment, the first commandment is about the object of worship. The second commandment is about the manner of worship. How do you trust and treasure the true God? So do you get it? First commandment, worship the true God. Second commandment, worship the true God rightly. Now, this second commandment, worshiping the true God rightly, as we're going to see, goes way beyond the shallow controversies of personality, personal preferences, and liturgical forms. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Chapter 20. Verses 1 through 20. And God spoke all these words, and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the lens by which you must look at the Ten Commandments. If you don't, you will misread the Ten Commandments. Okay? You shall have no other gods before me, number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is above heaven, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On that day you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner who's within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day, seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and that your, that your Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, 
When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And you would too. And said to Moses, you speak to us. We will listen to you, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a window into another world. And it's a window into the world of reality. Real life. The real stuff. What's really true. What's really solid. What's really life. What's really worth our trust and hope. What's really the treasure of all treasures. What really lasts forever. So God, would you lift up our heads and lift up our hearts by the power of your spirit and open the window to the other world so that we live in this one with life and joy and confidence and faith and without fear, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, many of you received the Martin's ministry letter. I think you have. Um, As I read it and thought about them and prayed for them, you know what I was struck by? All the change they were going through. Uh, The change of transitioning from Waco to China. No change possible in that kind of transition. Uh, there's, what, a new calling and a new work? Okay. There's the new home and the new culture. When I was a missionary and we were going through cultural training, they would always tell us, listen, it's not wrong, just different when you go into new cultures. And I tell you, our team, we would fight it over and over again. It's not wrong, it's just different. No, that's wrong. Um, new relationships, a new baby on the way, new food, new living conditions, new bacteria and viruses. I mean, all of life for the Martins right now has changed right now. All of life for the Martins right now is uncontrollable. Steve came in contact with one of those new viruses, impacted his inner ear, the nerves in there, and what do you get? He got vertigo. This is what he said. In the middle of Tuesday night, when I turned over in my sleep, I was awakened by extreme vertigo. The room was spinning. I was vomiting uncontrollably. There was little relief. When the morning came, I still couldn't turn my head more than 10 degrees in any direction without the symptoms returning. What does vertigo do to you? I don't need the doctor's deal right now. You know what it does for the layman? Vertigo is a physical experience of being completely out of control. Nothing solid. Nothing secure. Nothing to root yourself in. 
just a, a room spinning around and around in uncontrollable vomiting. Nobody in this room wants to be out of control in any area of your life. And I would say, even those that happen to have that laid-back gene, who are you? I want to know who you people are. Who has the laid-back gene? Some of you do. I know you're here. Yes, I see the hands. Even those with the laid-back gene, you know what I mean, the non-type A's. You blessed people that aren't type A. God love you. Even you want control. Jeff, how do they want control? You know how you want control? By not being in control. You want to be control of being phlegmatic and laid back. So everybody wants control. Everybody is seeking control. The insatiable need to control our lives, to control God, is the reason why we break the second commandment. For those of you that grew up in the church, I have a Bible trivia question for you. You ready? What is the great sin, the paradigmatic sin, the great fall of the Moses era? You know, those you go, you remember, think through your Bible stuff, your Bible trivia. You're going through the Bible as a kid, the stories. You grew up in the church. What's the great fall of the era of Moses? Now, we know what the great fall is of the first fall, the great sin, the paradigmatic sin of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. What was that? It was the breaking of the first commandment. Remember? The temptation of Satan was, you know, God knows you eat of this. You can be like, you can be like God. And other gods of self is what led to the fall of man. Now, what was the great paradigmatic sin of Israel during Moses' tenure? Several chapters after the Ten Commandments that we're looking at right now in Exodus, Moses is absent for a while up on the mountain. And him being absent for a while up on the mountain spins off all this anxiety for those who are down on the mountain, down at the foot. I mean, come on. He's been gone a while. Perhaps he perished on the mountain. There's a lot of fire up there. There's a lot of thunder up there. There's a lot of loud noise, banging, brutal battle trumpets going on up there, smoke, thick darkness up there. I mean, maybe he perished and he's just fertilizing stuff up there right now. And we wouldn't know it down here. But most terrifying of all, Yahweh's up there. So the people below grew impatient. The type A's took charge. The phlegmatics led them. They gathered around Aaron. And they said stuff like this. Aaron now, he's three years Moses is older. They're brothers. Three years older. So the older brother serving the younger brother. Oh, now that's interesting. Aaron, let's get the show on the road, bud. We can't just stand around here all day and do nothing. It's time to get moving. Give us some spiritual direction. Give us a spiritual vision for our lives, for our families, for this nation, will you? Tell us what to do. What's God's will for our life? Show us how we connect with God and His blessings. Come on, Aaron. What do you got for us? 
right? So Aaron gathers all the gold. He says, you know what? We're going to do this right because this is Yahweh. We're going to do it right. We're going to do it classy. Give me all your gold. No, I don't want your bread. And don't give me your little trinkets from Egypt. I want all the gold those Egyptians gave you and have been in your family for a long time. Give them to me. And the people are like, yeah, this is great. And they gave him all their gold. Because nothing, nothing's too small when you're doing something for God. So they get all the gold and they melt all this gold into the image of a golden calf. And all of Israel likes it. And they all say, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. This is what Yahweh is like. This is the image where we connect with God in a real tangible personal way. This is the image where God actually meets with us and blesses us and gives us safety and security and we know he's with us. This is the place. And before the ink even dried up on the mountain while Moses is taking the Ten Commandments, they're breaking the second one. Breaking the second commandment was the great fall of Israel in the era of Moses. Now, what's the point of the second commandment? What exactly did Israel do? How did Israel fall? Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol. The key question here in the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. Of what? (laughs) Of what? You shall not make for yourself a carved image? Okay, of what? I mean, like my wife, um, my children, our ancestors, of what? What's the big deal here? What's the big deal in the second commandment? And the answer is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol of the Lord your God. You know, the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The issue in the second commandment is not the object of faith, the object of worship. That's settled in the first commandment. The issue in the second commandment is how do you worship him? How do you trust him? How do you treasure him? The issue is manner. And it's answered in the negative. Isn't that interesting? And that's what's fascinating about the Ten Commandments. And we're gonna, when we get into the ones that are horizontal, not vertical... When we get into the ones that are horizontal, we're really going to see that that the commandments have a negative flavor, but behind it is the positive. And there's a reason for that. And we'll, we'll, we'll tease that out when we get to the horizontal ones. When we start realizing that the Ten Commandments are laying out what it really looks like to be a human being. An image bearer. The Ten Commandments are a restoration of humanity. So it's not just don't do that. It's because this is who you are. This is what you're made for. Okay? So, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol. So the answer of how do you worship, the manner in which you worship the true God, is taken in the negative. So it says this, there can be no, an image or an idol is a representation. So the passage is saying there should be no representations of God. None. No representations. Where? Look at verse 4. Any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, earth beneath, or water under the earth. In other words, what it's saying is you cannot and shall not take a representation of Yahweh from anything created. No images of God can be taken from creation to inform, stimulate, 
direct and drive your trust, your treasuring, your worship, your hope in the living God. In other words, no coming up with your own ideas about who God is. No coming up with your own views and your own thoughts. No coming up with your own philosophies and teachings. No coming up with your own theologies. No coming up with your New York Times bestsellers. No coming up with your Religion 101 course curriculums. Your worldviews of what you think God is like. No coming up with what you want or don't want about the true God. There is no God-making kits allowed to assemble God. None. But why? you got to ask that, don't you? I mean, why? I mean, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if you have an image, another person has an image, a group of people have an image that's beneficial to you? It really helps you in your personal spiritual life. It helps you connect with God. It helps you feel connected to God. What's the big deal? I mean, it's not breaking the first commandment. It's not rejecting the true God for another Lord, another lawgiver, another lover. You're worshiping the true God. What's the big deal? Luther, in his famous theological debate, in the 1500s over the DNA of real Christianity. He had every, it's interesting, you know, it's fascinating when you look at church history, there's always one giant, two giants that rise in the church on polar opposites debating what real Christianity is all about. With Augustine, it was Pelagius. With Luther, it was a guy named Erasmus. I mean, a world-class classicist, intellectual powerhouse And in their writings, in their debate during that period over what's the real DNA of real Christianity, this is what uh, Luther said, Erasmus, why is it that the God you write about, speak of, reason over, teach and debate, always looks like you? The second commandment prohibits images of the true God for our spiritual lives and for our corporate spiritual lives, in other words, our public worship. Because imaging God never gets God right. Never. Imaging God, one commentary says, domesticates him. Tames him. Shrinks him. Controls him. The goal in imaging God when we make images, and we all do this, and I'm, please, please let's get, let's get beyond the shallow discussions of pictures of Jesus in the church. Can we do that? And can we get beyond the Jesus film and get beyond, what's the latest one that came out? The Passion of the Christ. Please, can we get beyond that stuff? Let's really push it down to where all of us live in our own hearts and the imaging that we do, Okay. And when we get there, the goal of imaging God is not trusting and treasuring the true God as he is. When we image, we're not trusting and treasuring the true God as he is, as he's revealed in the Bible. That's not the goal. The goal in imaging God is using God for your own agenda and for your own desires. 
That's what happens when we break the second commandment. What's going on when we break the second commandment is we have an agenda, we have mega desires, and we image God to serve them. That's what's happening when we break the second commandment. So the golden calf was Israel's attempt to control God, to control their own happiness, to control their own life. It begs the question, what's your golden calf? What, what do you use to control God, control your happiness, control your life? Now, the point of the second commandment is this. It's stated in the negative. No controlling God, no shrinking God, no domesticating God, no taming God, no using God for your desires. That's the point. Now, those of you that are taking Bible classes, either at the, probably most of you would be at the, uh, at the college level, the university level, some religion class, or even at seminary, or you will one day, you will come across teachers who love to image God, who have all kinds of golden calves. They, they make a whole course on a golden calf. I just want to give you a little advice. I was preaching at the RUF the other night. We talked a little bit about this, but I thought, you know what? I think we all need to hear this. My kids need to hear this now. So when, when they get to college, do you know how many parents call me crying over their kids going to Baylor, losing their faith? Here's some advice. Kids, do not spend all your energy fighting and being frustrated by the teacher's golden calf. You'll get nowhere. You'll only get a bad grade. The golden calf is not the issue in what's happening in the class. The teacher's mega desire is the issue. So what I want you to spend your energy on and prayer about is... I wonder what the mega desire of that teacher is. What does that teacher want? Ultimately, what must the teacher have that makes them happy and is their life? Because whatever that is, the golden calf is serving that. It's serving that. So here's what you can do. Once the mega desire is identified, you can relax and you can have some fun. You don't have to sit there and fight and say every time it's something wrong said about God. Right? And then everybody looks at you. There's Jerry again. Picking on Jerry. Is Jerry here? Has he gone at the phone? Okay. There's Jerry again. You can relax. You can have some fun. Here's what you can do now. You can respectfully ask questions that uncover theirs and the other students mega desire and maybe lord willing possibly lead to discovering the true god so you do stuff like this i wrote these down you ready you ask questions like this do you think that the desire this is your first question after all this has happened do you think the desire for power for recognition for influence over others can shape the way we look at the bible at God, professor? Is that a possibility? Professor, do you think that higher critics of the Bible only engage in unbiased analysis? I mean, they're just completely a blank slate and they're objective. Here's another one. 
What, if any, impact of the desire for personal freedom and independence, what, if any, impact does our desire for personal freedom and independence impact our view of God in the Scriptures? Just some help from one who's been there. I didn't go to Baylor. I went to UMass, affectionately called Zoo Math. It's quite a different environment. The second commandment demands us, demands that we trust and treasure the true God rightly at all times. No controlling him, no using him, no domesticating him, no taming him, no shrinking him for our own desires, our own agendas, our own preferences, right? So this means when you don't get what you want, we don't go in that direction. This means when life doesn't go our way, we don't, oh, I want him to be like this. We don't go that way. Do you know, in, in various pastoral situations, when life gets really hard, it's so tempting and it's so easy for us to now grasp God in a different way than we've known about, and that's revealed in the scriptures. This means even when the Bible shocks us with who God really is and what he's like, we don't make an image of him. We don't hang on to one that we might have when all of a sudden we're confronted in the scriptures that this is what he's really like. This is who he really is. Uh, no. This means when we succeed and our bank account is full and our gifts are praised and people really like us, we're not to shrink God. When things are really going well, we're not to domesticate him. The second commandment also does not tolerate absolutizing moralizing, making a standard of righteousness for all our personal preferences and our personality inclinations in worship. Do you know what that means? No Christian ghettos. You know what that means? Okay, here I get to step on people's shoes here. In other words, no Christian ghettos about you got to dress this way, you got to eat this way, you got to educate this way if you're a Christian. That's shrinking God according to our preferences. No, you got to recreate this way. This is how you got to spend your leisure. <clears throat> this is the way you can't spend your leisure. No spending, you know, you got to spend your money on this way. You got to engage or disengage the culture this way. What else do I have down here? Oh, you got to date or not date this way. Or wives, this is how you submit to your husband. This is what it looks like. Absolutized, moralized, standardized righteousness. Husbands, this is the way you lead your wife. This is the way you lead your family. You better be doing the but you better be checking the bank account. Are you balancing the checks? Absolutizing, moralizing, standard of righteousness, right? Another one is this no sandy patty only music. Please, please. Here's another one. No Bohemian, Generation X, Lost Generation, Baby Boomer Generation, Contemporary, Traditional, Blended, High Church, Cultures, Expressions, Preferences are right and righteous and everybody else is wrong and unrighteous. None of that. 
In other words, the second commandment does not allow us to absolutize, moralize, elevate, make righteousness our preferences, our personality inclinations when it comes to worship. That is using God. That is domesticating God. Oh, God's like a bohemian. Only a bohemian. Or God's like one of those high church people. When they, do they ever come down and connect with people? Do you see? Okay. Now, embedded in the second commandment is the human addiction for control. I think that's kind of a theme coming through here, isn't it? The human heart has an addiction to control. And what happens is, is that we, we take control and we say self-control is, is how we find happiness. Self-control is where I'm going to gain security and I'm going to be safe. Self-control is where confidence and comfort come from. I'll be righteous, I'll be okay. And so what happens is the objects can vary because you can try to find control in a spouse. You can try to find control in someone's love. You can try to find control in controlling your respect and controlling so-and-so's approval and controlling your career, controlling nice children. The objects of control can vary, but the addiction for control is always there. just expresses itself in different ways. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do to stop an addiction to self-control? What do you do if you're a controlling person, which you are? How do you find the real control that you need? That's the real question of commandment number two. The Lord God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. You see that in verse two? I am the Lord your God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This Lord, this God, cannot be controlled. He cannot be domesticated. He cannot be tamed. You know why? The text, the text is so clear. Because he's the great king. You know what's fascinating about this passage is that Old Testament scholars are unanimous that the Ten Commandments is outlined like a treaty. Like an ancient Hittite treaty treaty. It's outlined just like when a suzerain king, the greater, the king who is able, the king who is powerful, the king who is in control. The greater binds himself to a lesser nation or king. It's called a vassal, a weaker, defeated one. And in binding himself, the structure of the Ten Commandments reads just like a treaty. It's a literary form in the ancient Near East that's universally recognized. And so what you have is you have this greater binding himself to a lesser. You have the greater one taking the role of the one who has control. And what the one does, what this Hittite, this suzerain king does with a vassal is they bind themselves to the, the weaker and the younger in a legal way, in a deeply personal way. 
and says, I will take charge. I will take control of your well-being, of your nation's defense, of your provision and protection. When you're threatened, my nation will come running. And so what God is doing by taking that form and laying it out for all to see, he is saying to all of Israel, I am the great suzerain king. And I'm the kind of God who personally takes upon himself, who personally takes upon himself to carry you. to lead you, to forgive you. I take it upon myself to love you. I take it upon myself to be your Lord, to rescue you and deliver you, to forgive you and redeem you and justify you. I, the great King, take it upon myself your good. But he does this, even in this text, he does it at a great cost to himself. You notice that? Because of what Israel, because of Israel's golden calf, that was a great loss to God's glory, honor, name, law, and holiness. It was a great attack on that. And for him to still carry this people because of that great fall, he had to absorb the loss to his own name. He had to absorb the loss to his own holiness. He had to absorb the loss to his own greatness on himself. There is a debt. There is a loss to his honor and his glory and his name because of the golden calf. But what God does in this great treaty, he takes the loss and absorbs it on himself and doesn't put the loss on Israel. You know, and all we have to do is hit fast forward. And we know where he puts the greatest loss on. Years later at the cross, it meant an unimaginable cost absorbed on himself by crushing his own son. And so at the cross, we have a God saying, I'm going to take it upon myself to forgive, to redeem, to justify, to carry, to love, to control, to shepherd, to deliver these people, my people. I'm the great Lord. I'm the great suzerain. I'm the great king. And I'm the great Savior. And because of the sins of the world and the sins of God's people, yes, it has attacked and created a debt to my own holiness, my own law, my own wonder, my own glory. And on his son, he places and absorbs all the loss to himself, eternal justice on his own son. So one son... takes the cost and absorbs the loss for multitudes of sons and daughters. One son 
bears the eternal loss of God's honor and his glory and his law and his holiness. Now, because of the unimaginable cost of the cross, here's what happens. Because there's this unimaginable cost of the cross that bears the loss, the debt of all sin of God's people, that's where your insatiable need to control your life can finally rest. Because you have a desire for control, a cosmic desire for control. But control, self-control will never give you the control that you really need. You need a place that you really get control, that your life is really secure and safe, that you're like, I am okay. Though the world moves, though the mountains fall to the sea, though I get bad doctor reports, though a wife loses her husband, You finally find rest in a control that you really need. You have a king who has taken upon himself in the deepest bond that you could ever make, the bond of his own blood and his own son, where he says, I will carry you. I will rescue you. I will deliver you. I take your life on my back. I promise, and there's my seal, my own son. Steve said his vertigo, his being out of control, made him look elsewhere for control that he really needed. Did you get that in the letter? It's interesting. He said, quote, I literally had to be still before the Lord and wait for him. Also in that psalm is the admonition to fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. That was also true in my case yesterday. How easy it is to fret, to pretend he's not in control of your life. Here's the dirty little secret. We are not in control of our lives. It's an illusion if you think you are. And trying to be in control of your life is where most of your problems come from. You are trying to control the uncontrollable. It's an illusion. We really aren't like God. Even though the serpent said we would be. So there's only one great king. There's only one suzerain Lord. And the reason why he demands no images of him, the reason why he demands no belittling of him, no domesticating him, no taming him, because if he did, you wouldn't have a place, a real place, to find rest and your deep need for control in a life that is so out of control. So here's the, here's the imperative. It's kind of attached to the one that's given in the text. Turn away from your golden calves and trust, treasure the Lord, the suzerain king who is your savior. Amen.